I want to talk to you about why we need the Holy Spirit's power. Why we need the Holy Spirit's power. Go to Exodus chapter 3, and I'm just going to pray quickly while you're turning there. Holy Spirit, we invite you, God, to come and continue what you've already been doing during this service, what you've already been doing in this house today. Lord, we ask that you would anoint not just my lips to speak, but Lord, all of our ears to hear what you're saying to us, God. Lord, we want to walk in everything that Jesus Christ died to give us. Lord, we recognize that we're living in a dark hour, and it's only going to be through your supernatural power that we're going to be able to do anything about it. So God, make us an effective people. Make us an effective testimony for your name. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Why we need the Holy Spirit's power. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." This is a really famous scene in scripture. A lot of people know it. Movies have been made out of it. And the whole purpose of it is to give Moses an illustration of what his ministry was going to be like. You know, if you've ever seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston or, or even the Prince of Egypt, the cartoon with Val Kilmer that came out in, I think it was the 90s now, seems like forever ago. The burning bush scene is always really mysterious. It's set back in some hidden cave Charlton had to climb all the way to the top of Mount Sinai to get to it. I don't know how he saw it up there. But in scripture, that's not what happened. He's just out tending the flock. He's at the foot of the mountain. It's a broad open field. And this bush that he's probably walked by a hundred times suddenly catches fire. The presence and power of God descend on it and his life changes dramatically. And in a way, it's meant to be an illustration. You know, Moses, you're just an ordinary guy. But I'm going to put my presence and power in you in a way that's going to bring an empire to its knees. There's nothing special about you. You thought you were special in Egypt, but now you're just an exiled murderer. You're a would-be assassin. You thought you were Spartacus. You're going to start a slave revolt and lead everybody. And that's really what what, what happened. That was probably why he did it. He He kills the Egyptian, goes out, tries to break up a fight among the Israelites. Who made you a ruler and a judge? It's like, oops, I guess they're not interested in following me. So he tried to fulfill it in his own strength, and now he's just a stuttering, stammering exile in the middle of the desert, 80 years old. He's not interested in delivering anybody. He probably wants to retire. And God says, nope, now you're ready because you know you're nothing. (laughs) He was just a bush. 
But the moment that ordinary bush had the angel of the Lord descend upon it, nothing would ever be the same again. And this is what brings us to our first point. If you'll look at the screen, the story of Moses is a story of God's power. That's what it is. The story of Moses is a story of God's power. Next point, please. God manifested in an ordinary bush and empowered an ordinary man. That's the, what the two chapters, Exodus 3 and 4, that's what they're focusing on. The fact that God took someone completely ordinary and did something completely supernatural through his life. There is no earthly reason for a, an 80-year-old shepherd, an exiled murderer, from Midian to go into the most powerful empire at that time and bring it to its knees. It had to be God. The next point, God waged a cosmic war against Pharaoh, God of Egypt. And that's what chapter seven and 11 are about, through 11 rather. God waged a cosmic war against Pharaoh, God of Egypt. And this is where we're gonna spend a lot of time just looking at the scriptures and teasing out what's going on here. When we think about the plagues that came through Moses' ministry, when we think about the confrontations and the dialogues that happened between him and Pharaoh, very often we think that the fight is Moses versus Pharaoh or Moses versus the gods of Egypt, but it's actually not. The real confrontation is Yahweh, God of Israel, versus Pharaoh, God of Egypt. Because Pharaoh was the embodiment of everything that brought favor upon the land. He was believed to be a God himself, he was meant to be the divine bridge between the human realm and the, God, and the realm of the gods and goddesses that they worshipped. And so the fact that Moses comes to him, he says, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. Pharaoh's response is pretty normal as far as he's concerned, but you can feel the arrogance of it. He thinks, I don't know your God, Yahweh. I'm the God around here, and the Israelites are my slaves, and I will not let them go. And so God basically responds to him and says, well, if you want to go there, so be it. If you want to play God versus God with me, we'll see who comes out on top. And so begin this series of plagues uh, where God basically turns an entire nation on its head. And that's what the first 14 chapters of Exodus are all about, where God, the, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is waging war against Pharaoh, the pretend supposed God of Egypt. And as I said, Pharaoh was considered divine. He was called the son of Ray, the sun god that they worshipped. He was called the good god. His responsibility was to bring order to the land. So if everything was well and there was abundance and there was peace and there were no enemies attacking them, it was said that Pharaoh had brought ma'at to the land. He brought order to things and he was being a good bridge between the divine and human realms. But if things were not good, if there was war, or there was famine, or something of the sort. He had brought ist, he had brought chaos to the land, and he now needed to fix the bad relationship that he had created between Egypt and the godly realm. And so now you have these plagues breaking out, and they're affecting everything that Pharaoh should have had control over. Everything he should have been keeping in order, everything he should have been able to exercise power over is now falling apart around him. And so what the plagues are doing is they're being seen as an attack on Pharaoh himself. It's not about the land of Egypt. Everything that is being touched by the plagues, the priests and everyone is looking and saying, their God is attacking our God. This is a divine war. This is a cosmic war. This is a big deal. It's not just, oh man, we've got to dig along the side of the Nile because everything turned into blood. I mean, as scary as that would be. It wasn't just the fact that they're being economically hit. 
These plagues were a national disgrace. Every one of them. Because it was showing that their Pharaoh, their God on the throne, was impotent. He was completely powerless. Everything they believed he should have had control of, he had absolutely no power to take control of before this desert God. Now speaking to him through this shepherd prophet. It's an incredible scene. And what's really fun, and this is where I get excited about the Bible. My, my teacher nerd side comes out a little bit. Uh, every now and then I'll be studying and I'll be looking through some facts. And at first it's really dry. But then the Holy Spirit just takes it. And he lights up this truth that just has incredible power. And I want to show you a, a visual. If we can bring that up on the screen. The plagues were actually patterned. Plagues one through nine take place in three cycles of three plagues each. They're not just a straight line, one through nine. They take place in a pattern. You've got cycle one, the Nile, the frogs, the lice. Cycle two, the flies, the livestock, the boils, all the way into cycle three. And because Pharaoh keeps on rebelling and he keeps on fighting against this other God, thinking he can win, they culminate in the 10th plague. The death of the firstborn, which of course is the absolute worst. Now there's a reason why this is critical for understanding the plague narrative. And what binds these things together is if you look at the top of the screen, the word confrontation is there three times. Because for each plague in the cycle, God confronts Pharaoh through Moses in a very specific way. Next please. For the first plague of each cycle, God tells Moses, go meet Pharaoh outside at sunrise. All three of them. So for plagues one, plagues four, and plagues seven. Had to think about that. My math is off there. Anyway, he meets him outside at sunrise. Outside in nature. All the things that Pharaoh should have sovereignty over. Go meet him there. At sunrise, when the dawn is coming. He's the son of the sun god, is he not? Go meet him at that critical time of day when he should be at the peak of his power. When he should be at the height of his strength. Go meet him then and there. Next, please. For plague two in each cycle, it's in the royal court. It's in the palace. It's in the place of legislation. The place where he's making laws and he's casting judgment over the people and over the land. God says, all right, you're not going to listen outside. I'm coming into your house. Obey me or else. So the confrontation intensifies. And then for the third plague in each cycle, next please, there's no conversation. Diplomacy has reached its end. He doesn't talk to Pharaoh. He just tells Moses, just pronounce judgment over the land. No more conversation. No more opportunity. No more dialogue. So you have cycle one, meets him outside. No, I'm not letting him go. Meets him in the royal court. No, I'm not letting them go. Fine, no more conversation. Moses, send another plague. Then rather than annihilating the land, God hits the reset button and resumes diplomacy. It's an extension of mercy. And you see this three times until finally God has had enough and the 10th plague comes. So that's what binds it together. And again, there's a very important reason it's important. Thank you. You can take that down now. Can we give a hand for the projector crew? They're awesome. They are really awesome. At home, I'm spoiled because I've got a remote. I can just do it myself. But they're really easy people to work with. So thank you guys so very much for your ministry. Um, the reason why that pattern is so important, and you've got to see that cycle, is because the way they were grouped showed that these were not chance happenings. It was a systematic series of judgments from a God who is out for war. 
He means business. So any attempt that Pharaoh or his priest could have made to say, no, these are just chance happenings. We just had a string of bad luck. We'll make the right sacrifices to our gods and everything will be well again. No, it was too systematic for that. You can't explain this away. This is not chance. The odds are way too slim. It's one in a billion, billion. And again, they're all happening in areas where Pharaoh should have been in control. They were not just economic devastations. These plagues were national disgraces. Their God on the throne is getting punked by some desert God that no one in Egypt has ever heard of. National disgrace. And one plague after the other, Pharaoh is just getting defeated and defeated and defeated. Why does this matter? What relevance does it have for our lives? Well, this is where our next point comes in. The story of Moses is not just the story of God's power in general. It's the story of Jesus. The story of Moses is the story of Jesus. Next point, please. He appeared as an ordinary man, just like Moses. God appears in a bush, says, I'm going to take you, an ordinary person. I'm going to fill you with my power. That's what happened with Jesus. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the son from the father, full of grace and truth. Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came to this earth and became a true human being so that he could fully participate in all of our pain, all of our suffering. And even though he felt all the effects of sin, he was never defeated or corrupted by it. He appeared as an ordinary man. The next point, please. And in that man, that man ministry, that ordinary ministry, he waged a spirit-empowered war against darkness. So he came to the God of this world and turned his kingdom upside down. Acts 10.38 says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Do you see the parallel? Moses was an ordinary man empowered by God to go set captives free. That was a foreshadow, was a type of the ministry of Jesus, that God Almighty would come, robe himself in flesh, live an ordinary human life, but by the power of the Holy Spirit resting on him as the Messiah, he would make war against evil and win. He would set captives free. He would deliver people from bondage to sin and shame. That was his ministry. The outcome of his ministry was deliverance for oppressed captives. Just like it was for Moses. When he went in, he turned Egypt upside down by the power of God. And a whole nation was liberated. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. But you know, the thing that we also have to see is that Jesus' ministry wasn't meant to stop with him. You know, the Old Testament talked over and over again about how there would be a Messiah, a king who would come and the spirit of God would rest on him in power. And with that power of the spirit, he would bring freedom to the people of God. He would set captives free. But then you get into the New Testament. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's got this new bit of information that no one's ever heard of before. That not only would the Messiah receive the Holy Spirit, but he would baptize his followers in the Holy Spirit. He would take the spirit that was upon him and he would put it upon his people and they would carry on the ministry that he initiated and that he began. 
And so if you could see the next, if we could bring up the next point, rather, the story of Moses isn't just the story about God's power. It's not just the story of Jesus. It's also the story of the church. The story of Moses is the story of the church. Why? Next point, because Jesus calls ordinary people. He doesn't look for for the high and mighty. He doesn't look for the wealthy and the super educated. He calls ordinary people. Acts 4.13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So where do these guys get their education from? Oh man, they were with that rabbi that we crucified. His legacy lives on. His voice is still speaking through these men. Where did they get this from? Jesus still calls ordinary people. God still comes upon ordinary bushes that are dry and dead and they have nothing in themselves to offer. But the presence and power of God comes upon them and now kingdoms are brought to their knees. That's the way he works. And you can see it. God's story is the same all through the Bible. He gave us the story of Moses to show us there's another deliverer coming who's going to be even mightier than this one. But he's not going to stop there. He's going to raise up other deliverers like him. And they're going to carry on the same ministry in the same power with the same product. People go free. Because God's heart is to rescue. God's heart is to deliver. And Jesus still calls ordinary people to do that. The next point, please. Jesus wages a spirit-empowered war against darkness through us. Yes, he defeated evil at Calvary. He defeated the powers of sin. He defeated Satan at the cross. But until his return, when everything is consummated, is the word that we we often use to describe, until everything is fulfilled, the enemy has great wrath because he knows he's only got a short time. His fate is sealed and he wants to take as much of this world into judgment for eternity with him as he possibly can. And our job is to minimize what he's trying to do. Our job is to empty hell and fill heaven. That's our job. And Jesus is still waging that war. The war that he won 2,000 years ago, he is still waging that war through you and through me. And he's doing it in the same power. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Beloved, we are at war. We are at war. And if you are a Christian, you are an enlisted soldier. If you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have been called and recreated to fight. You have been called and recreated to fight for people who are out these doors that have no power to fight for themselves. They have no strength to get out of where they are. They need to be rescued. And you're the soldiers. You're the unit that God wants to dispatch out of this church to say, go and get them. Go and bring them in. Go and break the chains. Go and sing those prison doors open like Paul and Silas did. Go out in the same power and the same commissioning. I gave my son and set captives free. The story of Moses is the story of the church. It's the story of the church. Last point, please, if we could put that up. Jesus has destroyed all of Satan's power just like he destroyed Pharaoh's. 
He's destroyed all of Satan's power, just like he destroyed Pharaoh's. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. He triumphed over every ruler, every spiritual wickedness, every demon that is waiting out those doors, thinking they're going to stop our mission. Jesus has already defeated them. And this is where the chart comes into play. Everywhere that Pharaoh thought he had power, everywhere he thought he was in control, Yahweh, the God of Israel, stepped in and said, uh-uh, your power is nothing compared to mine. If I tell you to let my people go free, you will obey because I'll dismantle your whole kingdom. I'll dismantle your whole country. When I speak, when I say freedom, you don't get to say bondage. You don't have the power to contradict me. And listen, there's still pharaohs outside this building. There are still pharaohs out there who think they have authority in this city, who think they have authority in your school or your workplace or over your family. You pull up that chart in your heart and you say, uh-uh, wherever you think you're in control, wherever you think you have power, Jesus Christ has already defeated you. You are messing with a God whose power you can't touch. His love is stronger than your chains. His cross is mightier than all of your shackles. The power that rested on Jesus Christ rests on you and me. We've got to use this power. We desperately need to be filled with it. We need fresh baptisms of the Holy Ghost. We need to be full of, we need to be full of boldness. We need to be filled with power to believe God. We need to be filled with compassion. There's broken people out there and they're strengthless. We were all one of them. And God sent somebody to us. I want to be that answer. I want to be somebody else's answer. I want to be somebody's Moses. I'm just a human vessel. It's not about me. It's about the power that God has deposited in me. That's what it's really about. And if you're a born again believer in Jesus Christ, he's put that same power in you. Beloved, don't sit back and just wait for the end. There's no time for games. People are dying and they need somebody to step out and fight for them. The enemy believes he has control. He, and think about it. I, we, we've got a Pharaoh presiding over the state and other states right now who think they can pass legislations to take away the future of, of not just this country, but they can destroy the image of God. And we can say, no, you think you have authority. You think you have power, but God has the final say. Jesus has the final say. We can fight. We have to fight. We've got to wage war against what we see happening. We can't just let Pharaoh go unchecked. God, raise us up, Lord. Lord, raise us up to be Moseses, oh God. Lord Jesus, raise us up to fight for people who can't fight for themselves. The whole point of being a spirit-filled Christian is to be a plague on the kingdom of darkness, folks. That's what it is. It's not so that we can have manifestations and experiences and really electrifying atmospheres. That is not the point. If we have all of that and we have really good times on Sunday morning, but we don't have any power to set people free, what is the point? What is the point? If people can't come in those doors and be loved and freed and shown that they're worth something, if we can't be sent out of these doors and be bold and be willing to open our mouths for Jesus, no matter the cost, where's the power at? 
I don't want to just be powerful in this room on a Sunday morning. I want to be a threat to darkness when I walk out those doors. That's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit, because we are not enough. We're not enough. There's no practical outline that can be given to us as the church to say, this is how we're going to fulfill our mission. It's got to start on our knees saying, God, fill us with everything we don't have. God, be through us everything that we are not and win a people for yourself out of this generation. God, rescue people for yourself, Lord. It has to begin there. That's why the prayer meeting is so critical. That's why the fact that you're interceding at home in your closet is so critical. Not everybody's going to be called to this kind of ministry, but this is not the only way Jesus fights. Not everybody's going to be called to standing on, on subway trains or on street corners, but that's not the only way Jesus fights. Jesus can fight through you when you get on your knees at home and you make war against sin. You make war against evil in your prayer closet. He can fight through you when you're on the job and everybody wonders, how is it that you're the only one in this office who doesn't have a bad attitude? How come you're the only one not cheating on your spouse? You can make war through where you are. You don't need to necessarily have a change. Moses was an exiled assassin living in the desert. And you want to talk about being in a bad state. Listen, Jesus can empower you wherever you are to speak to kings, to speak to pharaohs, to bring spiritual darkness to its knees. There is no limit with God. No limit with God. And I want to give an altar call for this afternoon. Very simply, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. God, fill me with the power to stand for you. Fill me with the power to be a problem for the kingdom of Satan. Fill me with the strength to represent you the way that you deserve. So would you stand with me? And we can, can we make that cry to the Lord? And if there's just something in your heart, you want, you want God to touch you. You want that empowerment. You want to walk with it, especially if maybe experiences with the Holy Spirit are something that's very unfamiliar for you. Listen, you're entitled to him as a Christian. You received him the moment you got born again, but he's got a work he wants to do in you. You have not yet even begun to scratch the surface of what the Holy Spirit can do in your life. And so I suppose in some ways I'm asking, who wants more? Who wants more? Who wants to be a problem when they walk out those doors to whatever demon, whatever stronghold they come across? Who wants to be a threat to Pharaoh? I want to challenge you because what we're hearing is the voice of God calling us as his people one more time for one more season to something that only he can do. And it's got to be something that's very real in your own heart. We would love a corporate experience where the glory of God falls down in the temple. And that's the way a lot of people see moments like this. But in reality, you'll hear it in our testimony tonight, Pastor Teresa and I, it came from an individual hunger. It came from something in our hearts that says, God, God, if you will touch me with your power, I will live for you all the days in my life. And I will give you whatever resource uh, you find with inside of my life to use for your glory. I'll give it to you. And how God met us is just a phenomenal story. And so I would encourage you, seek him while he might be found on the subway, on the way home at, at, at night. Just say, Lord, I, I need your Holy Spirit. And so whatever way you choose to do that, God, I'm asking you to give me your Holy Spirit for the right reasons. I want to live for you. I want to see people set free from darkness. 
I want to be a demonstration of the power that you promised to everybody who turns to you, that new life. I want to have authority, spiritual authority, to, to be able to speak to darkness that has to let go of people that it holds. If that's the cry of your heart, you watch what God is going to do. You watch. We're living at the edge of a promise of God that he would pour out his spirit in the last days. Now, we know that began at Pentecost, but these are the last of the last days now. And this is the promise of God. This is how he's going to counteract this darkness that wants to swallow the whole of everything good is by having a people again filled with the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we thank you, God. Lord, I, my life is in. I throw my life in with this, God. I don't care if I'm 65. Moses was 80 when you called him. And God, you will use me whatever way you choose. I just ask that I might be able to make a difference, God. In these days ahead, Lord, on whatever scale or level you choose, that's your choice. Lord, but I know I need your Holy Spirit. I know, God, that you have a, path, a pathway and a plan that's way beyond my thinking. So, Lord, I yield to it. I yield my plans. I yield my future. I yield every thought of comfort. I yield it all to you, Lord, and I ask that you would be glorified. God, let that be the cry of this church, Lord. Lord, we expect that you're going to do something that will astound us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise God.